the Australian Federal Police and the FBI came up with a pretty stunning scheme by which to not just introduce an undercover or, or tap a few phones, but to create an entire telecommunications infrastructure. Every message was likely to do with a drug deal, a murder, an extortion. Police Commissioner Reese Kershaw actually said, he said, hand yourself in, Hakanaik, because there's so many organised crime syndicates who, who want to see you dead because you've given them this dud phone. I'm Nicola Tallent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. It was a sensational blow to organised crime and when Australia's federal police joined forces with the FBI to create a phone network to infiltrate drug gangs, the fallout shocked both police and politicians. An Aussie drug cartel with tentacles deep into the airline and freight industry, along with border agents and the books of drug gangs, have been an eye-opener to the power of the criminal networks and to the wealth of the gangs. Today, I'm talking to multi-award-winning investigative journalist Nick McKenzie of the Sydney Morning Herald about the kingpin at the top of Australia's underworld, about the high prices for cocaine fueling a criminal gold rush, and about the extent of organised crime networks previously unknown in the world's sixth largest country. This is Crime World Extra, a podcast from sundayworld.com. So just to remind us um, what Ironside is, we did report on it at this side of the world. Uh, it was a conglomeration between the FBI and the AFP in Australia to uh, infiltrate criminal gangs through these encrypted phones, which they created themselves. Yeah, I mean, think of it as, as the world's best police sting, and that's certainly how it's been described. I mean, police are famous for, uh, I think, for talking up their operations, but this one was rightly talked up. It was simply amazing. So traditionally, police will use an, an undercover or, or an informer to infiltrate a criminal syndicate, uh, or they'll tap some phones. They might get a couple of phones that the crooks are using. Uh, in this case, the Australian Federal Police and the FBI came up with a pretty stunning scheme by which to not just introduce an undercover or, or tap a few phones, but to create an entire telecommunications infrastructure and then spread that infrastructure through as many criminal syndicates as possible. And they did that by, by getting to criminal syndicates and saying, hey, there's, there's a new uh, phone platform you should be using. Forget Signal, forget Cypher, forget WhatsApp. Uh, this new platform, Anom, it's, it's the one that the cops really can't bust. Uh, it comes with its own device uh, and it's, it's absolutely encrypted. Uh, you know, even the top intelligence agencies can't get into it. Now, word starts to spread uh, and sure enough that these criminal uh, organised crime figures in Australia, um, many of our organised crime bosses in Australia are now based abroad, they operate offshore. Uh, so from, from their offshore haunts, they begin spreading these phones around initially, they're small circles, and then it grows. Uh, now, the AEFP and the FBI have the technology to then monitor every message these phones are sending. So for 18-odd months, they're monitoring a vast criminal network, every message sent. And you can imagine, you know, on your normal phone or even on, on an encrypted phone if you've got Signal or WhatsApp and you're a crook, you might spend some of your time organising a drug deal, but then, you know, you might also use your, your phone to talk to your, your wife or your, or, your, or your mistress or whatever the case may be. But if you're using this phone, this anon platform, every message was likely to do with a drug deal, a murder, an extortion. Uh, so 
the AFP and the FBI were simply picking up you know, far more intelligence information and evidence about organised crime plots, including murders, drug trafficking, etc., than ever before. So the Aussie cartel, was that identified through this operation or was it known about before? Now, the Aussie cartel has been known about for a couple of years. It's a name given to you know, the, the who's who of Australian organised crime by the Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission. Uh, a couple of years ago, the, the name only came public. So that police referred to this group in private, then then it became public this year. Uh, and ultimately, it's it's a you know, it's a loose affiliation of top crime bosses. Some of these are, are guys are Middle Eastern organised crime bosses. Some are Baki organised crime bosses. There's a, a senior Hell's Angels figure in there. There's senior Comancheros in there. Uh, and uh, the nine or so players in this Aussie cartel, all based offshore, all working together to facilitate large-scale drug importations, to facilitate money laundering, to move people, uh, money, et cetera, around the world. So really operating like, I guess, a multinational business with different divisions. Each division belongs to one of these nine crime lords and working together. Each division works together where needed. Sometimes they they peel off. Of course, there's tension within that business, uh, but ultimately a very successful business operating model and making billions of dollars every year. Now, they're um, 1.5 billion, I think, um, they're estimated to be presumably flooding Australia with largely cocaine or is methamphetamine another drug which is a problem there? Uh, methamphetamine or ice has been a, a problem for the last few years in Australia. I think what we've seen recently is an increase in the amount of cocaine use. I mean, amazingly, cocaine use was spiking during COVID lockdowns. Now, you can't go out during a COVID lockdown in many parts of Australia so it suggests that people were still using cocaine by themselves, or you know, lo- locked it locked in at home. Uh, what it what it very much shows, though, as well, is that the supply chains into Australia, largely through shipping and air freight, were absolutely booming. Now that makes sense. Lots of people at home, locked down in COVID, are, are you know, ordering ordering new pairs of shoes or whatever online. But there's still drugs being smuggled in, really at, at exceptional rates. Uh, and again, Australia's price we pay here for cocaine, the market is extraordinary. So we, we mark up the price of cocaine more than any other market in the world. I think the latest figures released by police suggest cocaine per gram is at around $400 per gram in Australia. So the, the cost of purchase um, for the drug lords overseas, you know, let's estimate $2, $10, but the markup is extraordinary. So, the, you know, there's a, there's a reason why the Aussie cartel is, is, uh, is, going to Australia to, to send their drugs, that we pay a huge amount for, for the drugs and there's a huge demand. Yeah, it's four times the price of here in Ireland. In actual fact, some of our more enterprising criminal groups have um, attempted to fly drug mules from Dublin to Australia, a long way to go with cocaine in your stomach. But uh, it's, it appears to be worth it for them because of the price of cocaine on the streets and some of that has been uncovered. Um You've been uh, reporting about the infiltration of these drug gangs into airports, into Qantas, into Dubai Airlines and into these freight companies. Are these all private companies or is Qantas a state-owned airline? No, listen, most, uh, some of the companies are privately owned. Some of them are listed on the Australian Stock Exchange or stock exchanges overseas. Uh, In the case of the Dubai National Air sort of cargo services, air freight services company, uh, it's owned by uh, the Emiratis, so the, the government uh, entity over there. Uh, I think what's extraordinary, I think, is the is the level of infiltration. Um, so, you know, in our ports, 
and airports, uh, you're meant to have a security card which is vetted by the government to get jobs in these sensitive places. And what what turns out to be the case is organised crime gangs have been getting their members to get these government security cards and over many years setting up entrenched networks uh, at these hubs. I mean, you need to have people at the ports or the airports if you want to import large amounts of drugs. So it's a real real issue in Australia and uh, our successive governments have been trying to find ways to to crack down on on it. I mean, there's a lot of sort of soundings here in Europe about, and particularly with the Netherlands, that they're lurching further and further towards this narco-terrorism where, you know, all state agencies are infiltrated, the judiciary, the police, the government. Um, We're a long way off maybe Mexico and Colombia, but... It is certainly a concern and it sounds as if it is there too. Well, I mean, we're, we're nothing like a narco state. You think of a narco state, you know, think of Balkans countries, Albania. Uh, sometimes you, you have organised crime bosses in parliament. The problem in Australia, though, is that the, the organised crime issue, we like to pretend it's not here. We like to pretend we're corruption free. Uh, but the organised crime issue and the corruption that it breeds is very, very much below the surface. And we certainly do have infiltration of our state police forces, our border security forces. Uh, and, and you don't need many people to be corrupt in one of these agencies to be highly effective or highly corrosive. You know, one or two people in our border security agency, if they've got access to the right data, they can effectively be telling a, a drug syndicate, you know, when a drug shipment's been intercepted by police and when it's not. It's, it's a huge amount of protection you can have if you're that syndicate, if you've got that person on the inside. I mean, our police now call the trusted insiders. It's accepted. It's a big, big problem. And again, going back to that earlier question about the scale of the drug market in Australia and, and the wealth being generated, there's so much money flying around. So there'll always be people who are willing to be corrupted. Uh, and so corruption is certainly a problem, but not on the, on the scale of, of some of those mm. countries overseas. The, um, the 10% that were identified in particular, this Aussie cartel, through Operation Ironside. Um, Hakan Aik, is that pronounced correctly? I don't know. Um, somebody you've been writing about for over 10 years and who you tracked down to Turkey. Now, was he based in Turkey when he was distributing these phones? And can you tell me a little bit about his background? Yeah, I mean, he's an extraordinary figure. And if you were to take a quick look at him, you might write him off because you know, he's a very flashy gangster, all the, the big muscles, the prostitutes. But beneath all that bravado is a very, very cunning organised crime figure. Uh, So in his early 30s, he built up a significant drug trafficking network in Australia, uh, utilising his connection with the Comancheros outlaw motorcycle gang. But what was different between him and most other drug traffickers was he had this connection to the triads. He went to Hong Kong and organised or negotiated directly with the Chinese triads and that gave him a source, a direct source of large-scale importation. So he was doing the importing and the distributing uh, into Australia and across Australia and made immense wealth very quickly. He also learned that it wasn't smart. Normally, you know, back in the day, the Comancheros would be uh, in pitch battles with the Hells Angels and other bikey gangs. He began to get these bikey gangs to work together uh, and also forged other alliances with other organised crime gangs. Now, when police began to move in on, on him and his syndicate in 2010, he fled overseas. He then made his way to Turkey. He had dual Australian-Turkish citizenship. He dropped his Australian passport, became a Turkish citizen. He changed his name lawfully in Turkey, but basically got a, got a new name. The, the, the word is he got plastic surgery and began to build his drug empire, still targeting Australia from, from Turkey. 
the extraordinary story, though, with him is not just his his rise into sort of like the, the Steve Jobs of the of the drug world. The AFP managed to get him to become its key distributor of these anon encrypted phones. So he be, he became this unwitting partner with the federal police. The federal police couldn't catch this guy. The Turkish government, for whatever reason, was refusing to extradite him. So the the AFP you know, thought of a new strategy. Let's get him to distribute these phones. He's such a trusted player in the organised crime world and so respected. People won't think twice if they're in the in the crime world about accepting these these phones from him. He's effectively vouched for a phone platform that turns out was being secretly run by the AFP. So when the whole operation was brought to a head, it was revealed that you know, he was the guy distributing these phones. And the AFP police commissioner, Reese Kirscher, actually said in a press conference, he said, hand yourself in, Hakanaik, because while we may one day arrest you, what's more dangerous for you right now is staying out there by yourself, not in a jail, because there's so many organised crime syndicates who, who want to see you dead because you've given them this dud phone. Uh, so quite an intriguing, intriguing thing to say. And... Is he, I mean, he's not living openly, obviously, in, in Turkey. You did track him down to a hotel there, but um, is he still there or is he like... Well, latest intelligence, is he still in Turkey? Listen, I love to say I was, you know, some super sleuth magician who who uh, used my great brain to find him, but it wasn't that hard to find him uh, in Turkey. I mean, we, we, we figured out his new name by mm. looking at old Turkish records, but the point I'm making is he was living fairly openly, uh, the intelligence that I've received is, is he has connections in the Turkish police force and in the Turkish uh, political spectrum. He's effectively protected. So yeah, even mm. now, I think the Turkish government does not want to extradite him. They could if they wanted to, uh, but effectively they they look at it as a, as a point of national pride. They don't extradite their citizens. So effectively he has safe haven. Yes, there's a lot more pressure, uh, but mm. ultimately he's he's got that cloak of protection from the, from the Turkish authorities. No doubt he's He's put a lot of bribe money around uh, Turkey. I mean, you mentioned narco states that, that people would would say, I think, quite authoritatively, organised crime is a big problem in Turkey and in the Turkish state, and I'm sure he's utilising that to keep a step ahead of the Australian authorities. And Turkey, like the United Arab Emirates, appears to be the go-to place for these guys that are wanted, both in Europe and Australia. I notice most of the AFP's top targets are based in either of those two territories um, but I don't know whether I know I noticed that in the last couple of years the Emirates have handed back a few significant targets to Australia. Are relations there developing, or are they getting better? I mean, it's, it's always a case of, or tends to be a case of police to police contacts. So the one thing the Australian Federal Police have been very good at is forging uh, really close connections and friendships with with senior police overseas, and it's a matter of of one of our senior police picking up the phone to somebody in Dubai or uh, in another national police authority and saying, can you help us? Uh, mm. It shouldn't be the case, but that, that is the case. Unfortunately, th- in these countries tend to be, some officials there are corruptible. It's very comfortable living. Uh, the crooks love it. There's a, there's a great luxurious lifestyle to be had there. It's very central. You can pop around the Middle East. You can pop over to Europe. Um, so you're at the centre of all the action. Uh, and... Until recently, at least, they've been safe havens. There's been a reluctance of the local authorities to act on requests to extradite these guys. But I think that's changing over time, and certainly the, the Australian Federal Police are doing what they can uh, to, to, to make sure that more of these guys get, get extradited. And finally, Nick, your, your problems seem to be similar to ours here, that it's the demand that is really causing the, 
the ultimate problem and turning street crooks into billionaires. Um, what I do notice is you seem to have a very good relationship with the police. Am I right or wrong about that? Between the media and the police, you seem to be working very well together. Well, not really. I mean, I, I find, uh, uh, like any investigative journalist, you, the, you know, <laughs> there's never open, you never, you're rarely pushing in an open door. It's a, it's a bit, it's graft, you know, but the best the best information I get is not from the uh, the senior police ever. It's from the uh, detectives on the ground who are pissed off that the system's not working, who are pissed off that they're under-resourced, the laws are broken, and that there's you know, often lots of rhetoric from the government or from the the senior police about how great everything is. We're on, on the ground. They're seeing, you know, significant organised crime and corruption that's flourishing. Uh, so that that tends to be the case. Um, uh, I mean, there are some close relationships between between police and our tabloid media, uh, as is ever the case. But um, no, there's a there's a healthy friction. Uh, but uh, you know, demand. Yeah, that is the that is the big issue, and the big question that leads to is the question of of drug decriminalisation. Um, it's a question that is too politically hot to to have in a conservative country like Australia. Um, so if you're not going to have that question, then you need to to turn to things like proceeds of crime seizure. I know in Ireland they've got great laws which are well ahead of, of those in Australia, but uh, we're still we're still trying to find ways to better clean up organised crime and corruption in this country. It's a slow uh, glacial process, some might say. But certainly there's lots of pe- people on the ground, journalists and detectives who care and, and are fighting for, uh, for a better system. Yeah, it seems legitimate society just operates a little bit too slow for organised crime at times. But Nick McKenzie, thank you very much. Thanks for your time. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.